Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days and and that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him shall be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that text, Psalm 34. It's absolutely an amazing text, as you saw, as we read. And the title of this weekend's message is Taste and See That the Lord is Good. And so, uh, as we've been kind of working our way through various psalms, Psalms is a medicine chest for soul healing and soul keeping. We've titled this series Soul Keeping. Whatever you're going through, there's a psalm for that. And uh, as we've been kind of walking through psalms, here's the kind of really the thrust of this psalm, Psalm 34. When you think of Psalm 34, you, this should probably come to mind. 34.8, many of you probably have memorized it. And I love how he says it. He says, oh, taste. It's almost like the psalmist is just filled up with the goodness of God. And he's just inviting us, oh, my goodness, you've got to taste, taste of his goodness. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
And so he's just saying, hey, this is a fact. He's good, but you need to have an experience of that on your heart. And, and of course, he goes on, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The word blessed means total fulfillment and complete well-being. Is the man who takes refuge in him or puts his trust in him, as some translations say. So let's take a look at your notes here. The gospel is not only intellectually sound, but also experientially satisfying. I, this is what I love about the gospel, that it's, it's head sound and it's heart satisfying. Christ not only appeals to our minds, but also fills our hearts. He appeals to our minds, yes, it's rational. It's historical, it's factual, it's evidential. evidential. Do the research. It's rock solid foundation, it's rational. You gotta use your noggin as you think about it, look at it, re, you know, investigate it. There's plenty of evidence giving validity to the reality of Christ and his word. And it's rational, but you can't stop there. It's also very relational. It's experiential. It's satisfying. The 18th century Puritan Jonathan Edwards likened it to this. It is one thing to know intellectually that honey is sweet, but it's altogether another to experience the sweetness of honey on your tongue. So we could say here, as it relates to God's goodness, it's one thing to know in your head that God is good, but it's altogether another to have an experience of his goodness on your heart. In fact, here I'm convinced of this, because I personally experienced it, many of you have experienced this too, that the more, the more you taste of his goodness, the more you are ruined for anything else, believe me. That's what the psalmist is saying, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because once you've tasted of his goodness, you're ruined for anything else. Psalm 63, 3, the psalmist says part of his goodness is his steadfast love for us. And he says, his steadfast love is better than life. He's saying nothing in life compares to what you can have in him and what you experience in his goodness. And uh, that's kind of the thrust of this psalm no doubt. But let me give you a little bit of the, back, uh, the backdrop uh, of this, or really uh, the context, kind of the historical context by asking you some questions. Have you ever dodged a bullet? Had a close call? A near miss or something happens to you that is, is too close for comfort? I have. And then you get through it, you just celebrate. You're just like, whoa, can you believe that? What we just went through? That could have taken us out. That could have killed us. And you just kind of celebrate that. You just go, wow. And it's just, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. It's amazing. That's what, that's what David is experiencing here. And in fact, you saw that in the, in the front part of this, in the, in the reading of this as David, uh, Psalm 34, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech was the enemy king so that he drove him out and he went away. You'll have to study that more on your own for Samuel 21, but that's exactly what David is experiencing. And so the tone of this is different from last weekend. Last weekend we talked really about lament, Psalm 13, and so the tone of this is celebration and thanksgiving. You could divide it up into two major sections, and the first 10 verses are a song, and the last 12 verses are a sermon. I've chosen to divide it up into four sections based on this idea, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good by praising him, seeking him, fearing him, and trusting him. So, so here's what I want you to understand. 
Let me ask you this question. When was the last time that you experienced his goodness on your heart? You tasted of his goodness as he sang. I know that you know that he's good. The Bible talks about that, and you probably shared that with others. And you know that intellectually, but do you know that experientially? When was the last time that you were overwhelmed with his goodness? You tasted of his goodness, and you go, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. So, so my question for you is how do you take that truth that he's good in your head and take it down into your heart? How does that happen? How do you make that real to your heart? David is showing us that through this psalm. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good by praising him, seeking him, fearing him, and trusting him. Let's look at each one of those. Let's, let's unpack that. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to refer back to the text. We're just going to walk through it verse by verse. And so that's the first one. That's your first fill in the blank, by praising him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good by praising him. That's verses one through three. Look at verse one. David starts off this psalm by saying, I will bless. The word bless means, one of the ways you can define it is to adore. So I will adore the Lord. The word Lord is used 16 times in this, uh, in this chapter. And it's, the, it's God's personal name, Yahweh. It's his covenant name. And so he's using it quite uh, regularly throughout this uh, chapter. I will adore the Lord at all times. How many times will he adore the Lord? All times, at all times, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. How often? Continually. Now, if we stopped right here, didn't do anything else, just talked about that verse, this verse alone, if you not, not only knew it, memorized it, but begin to apply it to your daily life, it would revolutionize your life. I really believe that. It would not only substantially change your attitude, but also the atmosphere of your life. If we could learn, and we all tend to do this, if we could learn to stop nursing, cursing, and rehearsing the issues of life, the hardness of life, the difficulties of life, the problems of life, and started praising God as he's saying continually, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. If we could start praising him, maybe just for the small things, the small things that we take for granted, like, like hey, it's really cool in here. I, I thank God for air conditioning, especially when you live in the desert. Have you, have you thanked him lately? So, so just thanking him for air conditioning. How about this? Thank God that the people sitting around me are wearing deodorant this morning. Huh? Thank God for deodorant. Or, I mean, just small things. Like if you got a coffee from the bar, coffee bar, thank God for my quad shop shot Americano. Oh, baby, this is good. Thank you, God. That, I mean, just, just it can be simple things. Thank God for the car I drove over in and had air conditioning. Or, or thank God, I mean, so there's, or that I'm sitting around people that love me. Thank God I'm studying God's word. God is speaking to me through his word this morning. I can have an encounter with God. Thank God for that. So there's just, there's all kinds of things that we could be praising him for. That's why he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Or, I mean, let's take it even much deeper than that. Not just for the small things in life, but, but about, how about this? If you just went throughout the day, throughout the day, thanking God for who he is. God, you're sovereign. You're all-knowing and wise. 
You're ever present with me. Your love is better than, than life, than anything else I've ever experienced. Nobody can love me like you can love me. You're holy. You're faithful. You're unchanging. And you begin to think out the implications of each one of those and how they apply to your life. Wouldn't that change your attitude and, and the atmosphere of your life? Yes, absolutely. No doubt about it. Or, or you didn't just thank him for his attributes, but you begin to thank him for what he's already done. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I mean, he's reconciled you to himself by sending his son to die in your place for your sin. That alone, that alone should send you through the rafters, right through the ceiling, just going, whoa, God, thank you. Once again today, I know that I'm your child. You've adopted me into your family. Not only am I reconciled, but I'm adopted into your family. You've forgiven me of all my sins. You've lavished me with your love. You've empowered me with your Holy Spirit. I'm guaranteed a place in heaven for all that he's done for you or what he's currently doing in your life. You could begin to thank him for that. Or you could begin to thank him for what he's going to do in your life as you look into the future that he has your future in his hands. He's guiding, he's directing, he's loving. So that alone, that alone would change you. That's amazing. That's what he's saying here. He's celebrating all of that. Look at verses two and three. Let's add to that. So he says, my soul boasts, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. So it's almost like he's, he's sharing that with others. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Here's what I think that I don't, I don't think, I think we can do much better with that because, I, you know, as I hang out with some of you, I'm not going to point you out in here, but uh, some of you, you know, and, and I mean, some of you do really well with this, but others don't. I don't think we really praise God enough. I think that we, we boast in a lot of things. We boast in our cars and our homes and our, you know, how much we're making or any number of things. We boast in a lot of temporal things. But imagine if we started boasting more in the Lord about what he's doing in our lives and how he's speaking to us, how he's transforming our life. That's what he's talking about. I will boast. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. You can actually lift the spirit of others just by your boasting in the Lord. And then he says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Nothing better than hanging out with people that together you're exalting his name. Oh, my goodness. Talk about refuel. There's a few people that I hang out with that, that that's, that's what it's like. It's just like, oh, this is good. This is really good. Let me give you some cross-reference here. Uh, cross-references here to kind of help you with that. Psalm 22.3, these are on your notes. Um, Psalm 22.3, maybe you're familiar with this. God inhabits the praises of his people. He dwells in the praises of, of his people. What does that mean? He reveals himself to us through, through our praise. Psalm 92.1, it is good to give praise to the Lord. In other words, that word good, it means it is beneficial. That benefits your life. Psalm 104, maybe you're familiar with this. Enter his gates with what? thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Yes. Let me give you another couple fill in the blanks here. This is a C.S. Lewis quote. This is what he says. We delight to praise what we enjoy because it expresses and completes the enjoyment. We delight to praise what we enjoy because it expresses and completes the enjoyment. And... um, this is from Reflections on the Psalms, a word about praising. So, so if you listen to yourself, you do praise things. It might be that meal you had last night at that great restaurant. You've never tried it before, but you finally tried it, and it was like, 
wow, that's really good. So you're praising that. You got to check out this restaurant. We naturally do that. We delight to praise what we enjoy because it expresses and completes the enjoyment. All he's saying is lift your praise a little bit higher than just the temporal. Put it on the eternal and all that God has done for you. Here's your next point, a couple points on your notes. Praising God is not only in touch with reality, but also inner health made audible. Those are also statements or ideas from C.S. Lewis in his writings there, reflections on the Psalms, a word about praising. So praising God is not only in touch with reality, but also inner health made audible. Here's what Lewis also said. Let me kind of paraphrase it here. Lewis said, listen to me, Lewis said, we must praise God or live in unreality and poverty. So we're not praising God, we're living in, what did he say? Unreality and poverty. We cannot merely believe in our minds that he is loving or wise or great. We must praise him for those things and praise him to others if we are to move beyond abstract knowledge to heart-changing engagement. You hear what he's saying? How do we take those things that are true about God from our head down into our heart? By praising him and praising him to others. It becomes life transforming to us. Here's your next uh, couple fill in the blanks. When our praise is as glorious as the one we praise, it will attract and make others glad. That's verses two and three. So he says, my, my soul will boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. So, so are you known as a person who praises God regularly? That when, you, when you're with a group, you kind of lift the attitude and the atmosphere of the group because you're like, you know, you're boasting in the Lord and how great God is. I think it's kind of, it's kind of awkward for a lot of us. We have a hard time. And, and there are a couple different reasons. It could be the fact that we're not really filling up our heart with his goodness. We're not living in the reality of it. So what's in our heart is going to come out of our mouths and out of our lives. It's going to be seen in how we're talking and how we're interacting. So the place that you would start would be to spend some time really basking in the reality of his goodness. Oh, taste. That's what he's saying. Come on, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because believe me, when you do that, your mouth, your life is going to overflow with the goodness, with the goodness of God. And um, I, that's, so when our praise is as glorious as the one we praise, it will attract and make others it will make others glad. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name, his name together. So, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good by praising him. Here's the next one, seeking him. Seeking him. And you'll see that uh, these are kind of all interrelated, but these are the big main themes throughout this psalm. And that's found in verses 4 through 8. Before we look at the text, verses 4 through 8, let me give you a cross-reference here. Another place in the Bible. Psalm 105.4, it says, Seek the Lord and his strength. <clears throat> Seek his presence continually. Verses 4 and 5 of our text. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Now, check this verse out. This is good. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. So those who look to him, so when you look into the eyes of God, maybe through his word, in times of worship, in prayer, 
What do you see? What do you experience? Well, this is what you should see. You should see his favor. You should have an experience of the fact that the creator of the universe loves you and adores you and sent his son to die for you. You have his favor. Those who look to him are radiant. What does that mean, to be radiant? I, I believe those that look to him, when you live in the center of God's affection for you, you'll be radiant. You'll overflow with love, joy, and peace in your life. It can't help but come from your life. When you're looking to him regularly, your life will be radiant. Your face will be radiant. There'll be something about you. People will go, what, what is going on here? What are, you, what are you experiencing? I want whatever you're experiencing. I mean, can you believe it, what he's saying here? You'll actually be a pleasure to be around. Can you believe it? You, you, yes. You know who you are, okay? You'll, you'll, people will like to be around you because that, that guy, that gal, they're radiant because they're looking into the face of God regularly. They have a relationship with him. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. See, people who seek God and spend time with God are never cold and condemning. When you get around someone that's cold and condemning, they haven't been with God. They're very religious. That's, that's not God. So people who, who seek God and spend time with God are never cold and condemning, but always warm and welcoming. And he uses this word shame. Their faces will not, will not be covered with shame. As some, some translators say, the faces shall never be ashamed. Shame is, is being troubled over who we are. And we shame others because we feel ashamed. People that shame others are because they have a lot of shame on them. And we hurt others because we are hurting. But people who seek God and spend time with him, they're radiant is what he's saying here. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8 now. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Do you guys know the difference between an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord? This is talking about the angel of the Lord. What's the difference between an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord? An angel of the Lord is an angel, but the angel of the Lord is who? It's Jesus, yeah. And so you see that throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. So throughout, throughout the Old Testament... Of course, we see Jesus in the New Testament. We see him throughout the Old Testament because he comes as a Christophany, as the angel of the Lord. By the way, the Old Testament is about Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus. It all points to Jesus. You guys knew that, didn't you? Okay, just always keep that in mind. These people go, oh, you know, you don't really need the Old Testament. No, 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 you do need the, New Te the Old Testament. It's basically pointing to Jesus just as the New Testament is pointing to Jesus. And so Jesus said that in John 5. He also said that in Luke 24. He said, hey, it's all about me. So, so when you read, it should be bringing you to Jesus, always to Jesus. And so the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And then verse 8, kind of the big theme of this whole chapter. Oh, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Both of, both of those end with an exclamation mark. Now, let me ask you this question. I, I, I want to work this a little bit, kind of talk about it, kind of reflect on it. But let me ask you this question, see if you know this. What company has the slogan, 
Bet, bet you can't eat just one. Anybody? Okay, Lay's potato chips. Okay, some of you didn't know that, and so you have to be really, really old like me to know that because that's an old slogan. And so some of you that are younger is like, where, where is that coming from? Well, that was an old Lay's potato chip. Bet you can't eat just one. And so the idea was they take one bite of Lay's potato chip and they, could, they had to just, oh, I got to eat the whole bag. And, and, and that's a little bit of what he's talking about here. Let me ask you this question. Why in the world do they hand out samples at Costco? <laughs> that should be illegal. You go in there just to get a couple items, and guess what you come out with? All the samples that you just had. I'll take one of those. Honey, you got to taste this. This is really good. I never thought it would be this good. Oh, come on over here. My wife comes over there. Oh, that is really good. Do you want to get some? Yeah. I mean, so you're buying up everything. You're bringing, you, get, you got your basket full. Why would they do that? Because they know that if you taste it, they probably have you. I mean, that's it. How many have ever done this before? Have you ever stood over a cake and nibbled on it? Just, I'm just going to, I just want a little bite. Just a little bit, just a little slice. And you nibbled on it until half the cake was gone. <laughs> okay, I'm not the only one, huh? I mean, I've had that experience. It's just, it's, it's kind of crazy. It's just, I just have a little slice here. Oh, where's Nancy? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh, my goodness. Or maybe it's not cake. Maybe it's uh, my wife makes uh, Neiman Marcus brownies. I've done that a few times. Just, I just have just a little slice. I just want a little bit just to chase it with the coffee. And then I had too much coffee. Now I had to have a little bit more of that. So you just keep going back and forth. Or maybe it's not Neiman Marcus brownies, but it's uh, maybe it's lemon bars. She makes lemon bars or coconut cream pie. Ooh, I'll take that, too. How many have no self-control when it comes to chips and salsa? You can eat that whole bag of chips. I mean, and eat that, all that salsa. That's the, that's the idea that he's saying here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Once you do, you're ruined for anything else. That's what the psalmist is saying. And uh, I happen to believe that Christians should enjoy Neiman Marcus brownies more than non-Christians. You know why? I mean, we should be just celebrating the, all the, the goodness of God through food and through creation, created things, because we know that every good and perfect gift comes from God, James 1.17. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So don't let your praise and adoration just terminate on Neiman Marcus brownies, okay, or chips and salsa. You let it roll on up to, you know, the creator of every good and perfect gift. The perfect gift is Jesus. Good gifts are like chips and salsa, Neiman Marcus brownies. You can celebrate. You can have a worship experience eating Neiman Marcus brownies <laughs> if, you resp if you don't overeat them, okay? That's, that's another thing. But so what is the goodness of God? What is the goodness of God? Turn to the person next to you if you're sitting around people and uh, that you know, or maybe you don't know, maybe you might want to introduce yourself to them really quickly, but uh, what is the goodness of God? How would they define the goodness of God? Because when he says, oh, taste and see the Lord is good, you need to have some sort of a definition you're working from. What does that mean? What does that look like? Real quick, I'll just give you like 30 seconds. Real quick, discuss it.
So what is the goodness of God? Here's, here's my definition of it. I mean, obviously, his covenant love, his covenant love is an amazing love. And when you understand it, it's not like any other belief system. No other religion even comes close to this understanding of covenant love. There's a verse I was reading this last week in my devotions. It's found in Psalm 90, 14. It's one of my favorites. He says, he says, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love, covenant love, so that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. When you're satisfied early in the morning with his steadfast love, you do rejoice and you're glad all of your days because there's nothing like that. So his covenant love, his covenant love is basically we don't obey him to get his blessing or to get his love. We have his blessing and love in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we obey him. We respond to him. He doesn't love us because we have our act together as most religions would teach. Get your act together, then God will love you, God will bless you. No, no, that's not how Christianity works. No, God loves you, he blesses you, he pursues you, he puts his love on you, that's what transforms you. And so he doesn't love us because we're lovable, but in order to make us lovable, it transforms us when you understand that and you live in the reality of that. It's absolutely breathtaking, his covenant love. So I made a short list of some of what that implies. Here's what it means, his covenant love. It means this. This is God speaking to us in his word. I will never hold any of your sins against you. That's Romans 1.8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13.5 through 6. Nothing can ever separate you from my love, Romans 8.35 through 39. I always have your best interest at heart, Jeremiah 29, 11, John 10, 10. I am always working all things in your life for your good and my glory, Romans 8, 28 through 29. If I didn't spare my own son to save you, I won't spare anything else to take care of you and to get you home to be with me forever, Romans 8, 31 and 32. So Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is just a short list. That's what we should be reveling in every day, celebrating what we have in Christ Jesus. So what is this seeking of God? Let me give you some fill in the blanks as it relates to seeking. It is a conscious fixing our mind's attention and heart's affection on God. It's a conscious fixing of our mind's attention and heart's affection on God. That's what you should, have be, should be doing right now. It should have what you... You're doing, when we started this service, through worship, through the songs, and now through the study of his word, you're fixing your heart's, uh, your mind's attention and heart's affection on God. The opposite of this would be mental coasting. First Chronicles 22, 19 puts it this way, now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Now, there are endless obstacles that we must get around in order to, to really see him clearly so that we can be in the light of his presence. And so what we've got to do in our life is that we must run from every spiritual doling activity and run to those spiritually invigorating activities. You need to know the difference. What are those things that you do that kind of dull you spiritually? to God's presence in your life and what he's wanting to do in your life? And what are those things that invigorate your spirit, your heart, your attitude about God? Those are the things you, you need to run to. And what, what would you say is the greatest obstacle to seeking God's face? The Bible would say it's pride. Listen to this verse, Psalm 10:4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. So he's making a distinction between those that are righteous, those that know God, they're going to seek God as opposed to those that don't know God, 
aren't going to seek him. So in the pride of his face, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. That's the attitude. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. All of his thoughts are there is no God. He acts as if there is no God. He lives his life as if there is no God. It's one thing to believe that there is a God, but it's altogether something different. Or, or to say that, hey, I believe in God. It's one thing to say, I believe in God, and yet live your life as if there is no God. I oftentimes see people do that. Well, you just have a general idea that there is a God, but you don't have really a relationship with him. In fact, this is what it is. It is wanting him more than you want anything or anyone else. That's what, that's what it means to seek God. So it's a conscious fixing our mind's attention and heart's affection on God, but it is wanting him more, more than you want anything or anyone else. Jeremiah 29, 13, God's speaking to us, and he says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Hebrews eleven six. that's the faith chapter, he says this, that without faith it is impossible to please God, and he kind of defines a little bit of what that faith is. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, and whoever would come to him, if you want to have a relationship with him, whoever would come to him must believe that he exists, and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So are you seeking God? Are you known as someone who's praising God and seeking God? If you are, you're learning what it means to taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a story of a man who, in search of God, came to study at the feet of an old teacher. The old teacher brought this young man to a lake and led him out into shoulder-deep water. Putting his hands upon his pupil's head, he promptly pushed him under the water and continued to hold him there until the disciple, feeling he would surely drown, frantically fought the old man's resistance. In shock and confusion, the young man resurfaced. His teacher looked him in the eyes and said, when you desire God as much as you wanted air, you shall find him. Here's the next point on your notes. God is our greatest reward, and when you have him, you have, you have everything. When you have him, you have everything. I came across a, a, a definition of, of sacrifice this last week. I thought it was really a good definition. Sacrifice means giving up something you love for something you love even more. That was the definition. So as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about that, and I thought, okay, so, so when that something you love even more is God, what happens, what's happened in my life and many of your lives is that when that something you love even more is God, you realize that whatever you give up to follow him is nothing. It's nothing compared to what you gain in him. And in time, what you realize when people might come to you and say, oh, that, that was an unbelievable sacrifice, what you did to, to give up that for, for Christ, you would say to them, it wasn't a sacrifice at all for what I have in him. So sacrifice, is, it means giving up something you love for something you love even more. Psalm 1611, it says, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In fact, that verse actually starts with this. Uh, 
the psalmist is saying, you have showed me the path of life. I've never been more alive than, than when I know you and follow you. In fact, in your presence, I have your presence. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. No, so as Christians, we have his presence, but oftentimes we don't live in the reality of his presence. We have it in our head, but it hasn't gone down into our heart. And when we do, when we have those moments when we do, certainly we'll have it fully when we go to be with him for all eternity in heaven, but, uh, and which will be absolutely amazing. But we get glimpses of it, even now, that overwhelms us. And his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You can have glimpses of it even right now giving you a taste of heaven on earth. That's what he's talking about here. God is our greatest reward, and when you have him, you have everything. Do you realize what you have in him? It's amazing. It's out of this world. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good by praising him and seeking him. And fearing him, that's the next one, fearing him. By fearing him, verse 7 and verses 9 through 16 of our text. If you've got your Bibles open, you can follow along here. So the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Sound familiar? We just went through a series, Life Without Lack, Psalm 23. <laughs> so it's, so it's, a, it's a life of contentment. A life of contentment. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he goes through the implications of that in Psalm 23. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So here's a definition for fearing the Lord. We have a lot of confusion as it relates to fearing God. And here's a definition by Martin Luther. It's on your notes here. Here's your next couple fill in the blanks. It's not the fear a prisoner has for his torturer, but it is the fear of a son who loves his father and does not want to offend him or let him down. So when you realize what you have through Christ Jesus, your father in heaven who loves you, adores you, you realize he has your best interest at heart. And when you understand his covenant love, and all that he has done for you, the blessing, you respond with this fear. You don't want to do anything that would offend him or let him down. Here's your next uh, fill in the blank. Those who fear the Lord will fear nothing else because this is the fear that drives out all fear. It tells us in Proverbs 9.10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is competency in life's realities. And it begins with the fear of the Lord having this, this awe and wonder and respect. I don't want to offend him. I don't want to let him down. After all he's done for me, I'm going to live for his glory. I'm going to live my life in such a way it makes much of him. Psalm 16.8, it was a verse we talked about last week, 16.8. Uh, he said, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So let me ask you this. What, what, what shakes you up? What are you afraid of? I asked my wife this last week. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What's going on when you look at your, that fear that's going on in your life? You know the way that you overcome that fear? is by fearing God more. 
So it gives you opportunity when you're frightened by, by the circumstances of life or what's going to happen with your kids or your grandkids or, or your finances or any number of things. You've lost your job. What are you going to do now? What are you afraid of? If you fear God more, you will be able to eliminate that fear. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Listen to what Timothy Keller says from a Psalms devotional. He's talking about Psalm 34, these verses here at the front end of this chapter. And uh, it's really good. See if you can track with him. How can we be delivered from all of our fears? That's verse 4 of our text. The answer is comprehensive. Build your identity that gets its significance or makes its boast not from your accomplishments or racial identity or talent or moral efforts or family, but from God. That's verse 2. My soul will boast in the Lord. That's what he's talking about. Then and only then is the foundation of your self-worth secure and not subject to fears or shame. That's verse 5. Your face will be radiant. You won't be covered with shame. How can we get such an identity? By not just believing in God, but tasting, that's in parentheses, but tasting and experiencing God's goodness in prayer. That's verse 8. And by comforting afflicted people with the comfort we have received, that's verse 2, until they can glorify God with us, that's verse 3. So what he's saying here is that anxieties and shame and discouragement come when we try to make our boast in other things than God's goodness and unfailing love toward us. So we're experiencing those those negative emotions. It's because we're boasting in something. We've been boasting in something that's now letting us down. And it's because we built our boasting, our sense of identity on something that's temporal as opposed to the eternal God and his covenant love. So it's not to, not to get down on us, but it's an opportunity when we're feeling like that is to come back to God and to experience. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. That's amazing. That's what he's offering us. That's what David is celebrating. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, come, O children, and listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So he's going to teach us what this fear is and what that looks like. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And he goes on. He says, verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? What is he talking about here? He says, I'm going to teach you through the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord will give you the good life. Everybody wants the good life. What is the good life? He's going to define it for us right here. I think everybody wants the good life. We all define it a little bit differently. The Bible's gonna give us the, the best definition of all. What is the good life? Here's the first thing. It's the next fill in the blank. The fear of the Lord is the key to living the good life. That's what he's saying here. So Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Life without lack, which has little to do with possession, status, or fame, but has a lot to do with character, faith, and a desire to live for God's glory is what what you're going to see here. See, this challenges the lie in Eden that if you obey God fully, you'll be miserable. That's the lie in Eden. That's what the serpent said to Adam and Eve. Oh, God's holding out on you. You don't follow him. If you obey him fully, you're going to be miserable. That's the lie. That lie is all around us. I hear that lie every day. See, the lie is the good life is outside of God's will, not within it. I have friends that are chasing the lie. 
they think that they're going to live the good life by, by, by chasing something temporal as opposed to knowing God. They're insane. They're not thinking right. They're duped. They're deceived. I have family members who call themselves Christians, and they're chasing the lie. It breaks my heart. I'm thinking, what are you guys thinking? Happiness and fulfillment is not out there. It's in God. It's in his word. It's knowing him. It's walking with him. It's enjoying him. All of that stuff are gifts from God and pointers to God to be opportunity to be celebrated, but not to terminate on the gift, but to point us back to him, to know him, to experience him. That's the good life. And yet we believe the lie. He's holding out on you. The good life is outside of God's will. Go out and do your own thing. Don't let anybody tell you how to live your life. <laughs> this is God who loves you. He loves you more than anybody would ever love you. And when you think like that, you're believing the lie. You're being duped. And so David is celebrating. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Here's the good life. The good life is to taste and see that the Lord is good and to be in that sweet spot by knowing him and experiencing him and loving him. Look at verses 13 through and 14 and all the way to 16. This, so he's going to define this for us. Here's, here's the good life. Here's living kind of in that sweet spot of, of God's will. And he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So he's saying, hey, you live a life according to what God has spoken in his word, 10 commandments. He gives us a lot of good directives. This comes out of his love and wisdom for us. And then he goes, why should we do that? Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now, just verse 15, let me, let me kind of go through that a little. Let's kind of meditate just a moment. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears toward their cry. Here's what I do regularly when I have devotions early in the morning. First thing in the morning, I spend time with the Lord, and I have to sometimes just get me in that frame of mind by meditating on something like this. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Who are the righteous? Those who take refuge in Jesus. The righteous. So if you put your faith in Christ, you're trusting Christ's finished work, take refuge in his finished work on your behalf, you're the righteous. And this is what he says. Here's his promise. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. So I have to almost kind of spin a moment, just say, God, your eyes are on me right now. <laughs> it's almost kind of unnerving a little bit when you start thinking. It's like, he, he sees me. He's here with me. And, and, and it says this. It actually, he says... He says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. He, God, you hear me. So I just, that's a good way to start. Just like, okay, God, you see me, you hear me, you love me, I'm interacting with you. I'm not based on my feelings, based on what your word has already established. That's true. That's true. Notice what he says. The opposite of that, he says, verse 16, the face. Anytime the Bible talks about the face of God, it's talking about the presence of God. The face or the presence of God is against those who do evil. Man, you don't want that. That God's face would be, be against you to cut off the memory of them from the earth. No, 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 no. I want your face. I want to have interaction with you. So here's what, what de develops this fear of God. 
in us, living in the sweet spot of his will. Because first of all, he's, he pours his covenant love on us, and then we respond by obeying him. And so as we continue to obey him, that's that sweet spot. And why would we do that? Because it's all about living, learning to live for an audience of one. That's your next fill in the blank. It's learning to live for an audience of one. And, and this, is both, um, this is both comforting in suffering. So in suffering, this is really comforting. You're living for an audience of one. He's there with me. He hears me. His eyes are upon me. He loves me. So, so it's unbelievably comforting, but it's also terribly convicting when I'm in sin. The other night, my wife and I were hanging out with a, a couple other local pastors here, and when I left, the Holy Spirit really convicted me of how self-righteous and how religious I was in some of the conversation and so the Holy Spirit convicts us not to condemn us, not to shame us, but to draw us, to show us, hey, that's not a good path. That's not the good life. You don't need to prove yourself to anybody. You have all the proof in me. I love you. So he does that not to, not to shame us, but to draw us back into that intimate place with him, to sanctify our lives, to bring wholeness to our life, so he's revealing some sin in my life. I loved it, I, so I confessed it, I repented, I came back into his arms of love and said, Lord, rid me of that feeling like I have to somehow prove myself to others, these other pastors. And they're just, it's, it's horrible. It's not good, it's not healthy. And that's living for an audience of one. Brother Lawrence from Practicing the Presence of God, 17th century monk who found incredible delight in the discipline of practicing the presence of God in the most menial, mundane and even menacing times. This is what he said. We should practice God's presence through a continuing conversation with him that it would be shameful to trade such a relationship for trivial foolishness and that we should feed our souls on the highest thoughts of God. We can find deep joy, he said, by simply being with the Lord. He goes on, he says, the greatest pains and joys the world has to offer can't compare to the experience of walking with God. Relationship with God, intimacy with God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good by praising him, seeking him, fearing him, and trusting him. Here's the last, the last section here, verses 17 through 22. Trusting him. Verses 17 through 22, let me read that. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's a great memory verse right there. That's a good one to pray over your friends when they're brokenhearted and they're crushed in spirit. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Here's your next fill in the blank. Trusting God does not exempt you from suffering. A lot of bad teaching here in America. And, uh, and so you would kind of think, hey, now that I know God, I should have less suffering. Sometimes people that know God have more suffering as a result of that. That doesn't make sense. Why is that? Well, the Bible is very clear about that. Trusting God does not exempt you from suffering. That's, that's seen right here in this chapter, verse 4, verse 6, verse 17 and 19. Look back at verse 17 again. When the righteous cry, why would the righteous be crying? Because they're suffering. That's why. So when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their, all of their troubles. So what does that mean, that he delivers us out of all of our troubles? Well, this is what it means. It means that sometimes he calms the storm 
And sometimes he calms his child in the storm, but either way, he will deliver you out of all of your troubles, and you will have troubles. The Bible's very clear about that. Look at verse 19. Here's a good memory verse. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Jesus told his disciples just before he was going to be hanging on the cross that they were going to certainly be devastated and feeling abandoned by, by him. He said to them, in this world you will have tribulation. That's John 16, 31. He just guaranteed it. You're going to have affliction, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In fact, he preceded that by saying, I'm telling you these things before they happen so that when they happen, you will have peace in me. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Contentment in suffering is what trusting in God looks like, is what he's actually saying. Here's the next one. It is believing that God knows, cares, and rules, and that is enough. That is enough. Now, I need to deal with something, kind of a tough topic here. I had someone last night come up to me and say, how can I trust God's goodness when he allowed me to be abused? Would you say that's a good question? I think it's a great question. And uh, let me just say that if this is you, I'm so sorry. My heart is broken for you. And uh, it, there's no easy answers. It's very complex. There's a bit of mystery as it relates to the sovereignty of God and his goodness. But let me just give you just a brief thoughts on that as I kind of went through it and processed it. And... Uh, that God is not the cause of sin and suffering. We all know that. The Bible's very clear about that. It's our rebellion against God is the cause, and God is truly grieved at how we have ruined the world and abused each other. I love the insight that I got a number of years ago from Johnny Erickson Tata in her book, When God Weeps, subtitled, Why Our Sufferings Matter to the Almighty. This is what she said. She said three statements that really transformed my understanding. And the first statement that she said in this book is that she said, God controls or restrains evil, otherwise evil would be out of control. In his sovereignty, he controls and restrains evil. She also said this, this is hard for us to grasp, but exposing sin is more important to God than relieving human suffering, even unthinkable suffering. And so he uses suffering on this planet to expose our sinfulness. You know why suffering is so ugly? Because we are so sinful is what she's saying. When we look at the cross, the cross should remind us that's how sinful we are and yet how loved we are. And here's the next point she says, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And so... Um, 2 Corinthians 4.17 puts it this way, and it, it puts all of our suffering kind of in this category. Our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's what he has in store for you. And he says, if it takes suffering to get you to experience the glory of God for all eternity, he will allow that suffering in our life to bring our hearts back to him and to him. Now look at the text here, verse 18. He says, God is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So when, when we are broken and crushed by life, it brings God's presence in a way that nothing else can. I've seen that in my own suffering. I've seen that in many other people's suffering. That they have, a, they have a richness of the presence of God that otherwise they wouldn't have. Here's the next thing. And God's presence in suffering 
will make you deeper, stronger, wiser in ways that nothing else can. God can bring beauty out of ashes. Isaiah 61, in prophesying about Jesus, that's what he came to do, is to bring beauty out of ashes. And so this woman that came up to me last night that shared that, that woman is beautiful because now she has some years behind her in her abuse, and she was actually talking in behalf of other people that have been abused, and that woman is, is deeper, stronger, wiser, has an intimacy with God that would be envied by most, and she's helped out a lot of others with their abuse, with their hurt. It's, it's, it's stunning. And so, back, look at verse 20, the Lord keeps... The Lord keeps all of his bones. This is actually in reference um, to Jesus. Um, John 19, 36 says it applies to Jesus, that not, not one of his bones would be broken, but I think it also applies to us too. Not that we won't have any bones broken, but I think what that word means, the Lord keeps all of his bones. The word keeps means to exercise great care over. In other words, everything that happens to us is Father filtered. No suffering is for nothing. That's an Elizabeth Elliot title of a book that she wrote. No suffering is for nothing. Your father is lovingly and wisely ruling the events of your life for your good and his glory. Therefore, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. The word acknowledge means cultivate intimacy with him. Get to know him, and he will direct your paths. Here's your last point. There's no refuge from God, only in God. God's answer to the sin and suffering of this world is his son, Jesus Christ. If you don't take refuge in Jesus' saving work on your behalf, then inevitably and eventually you will have no refuge from God's judgment when he comes again to make all things right. Look at verses 21 and 22. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him or trust in him will be condemned. So here's my appeal to you this morning. If you don't know him, take refuge in his finished work on your behalf. He died in your place for your sins. Take refuge in him and taste and see that the Lord is good. How do you take refuge in him? You acknowledge your sin, separate you from God, you believe that Christ died on the cross for all of your sins. You confess him as Savior and Lord. You turn your life over to him, begin to live for him, and taste, and you will see that he is good. Next weekend, Psalm 46, where's your refuge? Is it a sandcastle or a fortress? That's what we'll look at next weekend. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So, Father God, we don't want to just know you intellectually. We don't want to know you just intellectually. We want to experience your love. We want to know you, experience you in our hearts, in our lives. Teach us how to taste and see that you are good by praising you and seeking you and fearing you and trusting you with all of our heart and therefore finding our deepest satisfaction in you. We pray in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.